Father in heaven, we pray now your Holy Spirit will continue to speak to us as you've been speaking to our hearts already as we ask ourselves some questions. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I started last Sabbath talking about the focus for this fall. And I told you that the focus is five questions. But I cheated you a little bit. I didn't tell you what all five of them were. I just told you the first question. And we're going to continue focusing on that first question today, but we'll move on from there. But it's only fair at this point, I think, that I tell you what all five of the questions are. So, so the very first one is what we started last week, is the question, do you want me here? It is a question that we all subconsciously ask whenever we enter any setting. We take a look around, we look at the environment, we look at the people, we look at how we've engaged upon arrival, and that question comes into our mind, do they want me here? Because if it's no, it's very likely we won't come back. But if it's yes, there's a very good chance we will. Do you want me here? But that's just the first question that goes through people's minds, particularly in the context of a church. The second question, I believe, that will come up in the mind of a person is, do you love me? Now, you might think, well, that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Well, not necessarily. We have a lot of motives, don't we? And we can go out of our way to make it appear we want someone around, but we can have a very selfish motivation for it. So the do you love me question gets at our motives, gets at our heart. We're going to start on that next Sabbath. But particularly in the context of a church, a third question comes to mind, anyone that would come into a setting like this, and that question is, is the Lord with you? And when we say we're a church here, we say that we're here worshiping the God of heaven. Is there evidence within the community that the presence and power of God is here? That's a fair question. And I think anyone who walks into a church should ask that question. Is the Lord with you? Or is this just it's an elaborate show? Is there power behind the words? The fourth question that any community like ours ought to be able to answer is, do you have a purpose? Do you want me here? Do you love me? Is the Lord with you? Do you have a purpose? Or are you just spinning your wheels? And then the fifth question, is there a place for me in that purpose? So these are the five questions we're dealing with this fall. And we've started with, do you want me here? So last Sabbath, we ended with John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Because as we talked about, do you want me here? Our ability to project to someone else that we want them here is very closely tied to our own sense that we are wanted. Are we wanted? John 14, verses 1 through 3 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. You've got it in the Bible. You've got it in a promise from Jesus. He wants you to be with him. So the foundation of everything we do is that reality that we are accepted in the family of God through Jesus. And Jesus wants us here. So you are wanted. And on that foundation then, we extend that that desire. Because we're not the only ones that Jesus wants with him. He wants everyone. So this is the foundation. We spent some time last Sabbath talking about the story of Ruth and specifically about how Boaz interacted with Ruth when she showed up, how he was signaling to her that he wanted her there. Do you remember this? The very first thing he did was take notice of her. And that's a very first important point, is to notice when a new person has come into an environment. You notice. Now, you can notice, and they don't even know. And so that's not really the kind of notice that we're necessarily going for. So it starts with you notice, but then second comes some sort of communication. Some sort of connective interaction. Doesn't have to be deep. Doesn't have to be long. Just notice and interact. So number one, notice. Number two, communicate. Number three, show kindness. Boaz went out of his way to invite her. Come on over here. Eat with us. Have some of our food. Show kindness. Number four, make provision. See, Boaz noticed. He communicated. He showed kindness. And then when Ruth went back to work, he went to the others and he said, hey, I want you to not scold her even if she takes grain right out of the sheaves. In fact, I want you to pull some out and leave it on the ground for her because she's a special woman who is doing a special thing and I want you to make it as easy for her as you can. We also talked about the story of Cornelius, how, how God revealed a vision to Peter and said, I want you to go meet this guy. Now, that's not how God did it. He let down a sheet, and it had animals in, and he said, kill and eat. And it's a very bizarre story. But the message that God was trying to give Peter was, you do not yet understand everybody that I want in my kingdom. Right now, you think it's Jews and maybe Samaritans if they'll behave themselves. But what you don't know is that I'm about to create a kingdom that's going to have even more Gentiles in it than Jews. And you're going to be the one who shows that the door is open. Now, I'm going to go ahead of you. I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit because you're not going to believe it. You're not going to be willing to baptize them without putting up a whole list of regulations. But I'm going to go ahead and pour out my Spirit, and you're going to be like, well, I guess we got to baptize them. They are already filled with the Spirit. It's an amazing story. But now I want to go on with this question, do you want me here? Because interesting things happen within the family of God. Even inside the family, even when 
You've been invited to be a part even when you've taken the steps, you've been baptized. Even then, inside the family, it can be tough because we often think inclusion means uniformity. Right? We've all got our little test. Are they really in or not? Well, they're not acting right. They must not be in. This happened in the early church. Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to start today. Acts chapter 6. This is the early days of the church. We're just at chapter 6 here. Acts goes on. We have all the letters of Paul still to come. This is early. Acts chapter 6 verse 1 says, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. All right, here we go. Chapter 6, church just got started. Guess what? Trouble in the church. Did you notice the two groups that are, that are described here? The interesting point to notice first is they're all Jews. All right? We don't have to be different races to not get along. You leave us alone in a room, we can find a way to fight, right? They're all Jews. But there are important adjectives that go before Jew in both cases. You have Hellenized Jews and Hebraic Jews. Why was this a problem? Well, here's why it's a problem. The Hellenized Jews were the ones who were living like the Greeks. That's what that term means. You see, the Greeks had dominated that region for a long time before the Romans. And many of the Jews had said, you know what, it's better to get along and let's, let's just live like them. But the more faithful Jews, if I can use that term, had said, no, God gave us a separate culture. We must maintain our separate culture. And everything that these Hellenizers are telling us are destroying everything that matters about the faith. And you Hellenized Jews have compromised, whereas we have remained pure and orthodox. And this division existed within Judaism when Jesus came. But after Jesus came and died and rose again and the church got started, interestingly, Hellenized Jews as well as Orthodox Jews put faith in Jesus. But now you had a problem. You've got a church where half of the people believe part of the faith is to live like a Jew, and half of the people say, no, I think we're allowed to live like this. And the problem manifests itself in service. You see, there were widows who were of the Hellenized Jews and widows who were of the Hebraic Jews, and the widows of the Hebraic Jews were getting the things they needed to survive, but the Hellenized widows were not. Who knows? Maybe they had even married Gentiles. Maybe they didn't deserve it, right? You see how our minds work. Verse 2 so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. 
Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, there are several points we need to understand in what I just read you. The first point being the wisdom of the twelve. So these were 11 of the ones who followed Jesus. Judas was a 12th. Uh, Judas betrayed and then died. And then they replaced him so that there were 12 again. So these were the ones who had witnessed to Jesus, the original 12. And when this situation came up, they had the wisdom to say, wait a minute. This is a problem the community needs to solve. We need to continue to teach you the word, but the community needs to recognize what it is and from itself appoint leadership to attend to the practical issues that arise among the people. Now we'll come back to that in a second, but first I want you to notice the names of the people they chose. Now this doesn't always stick out to our ear because Bible names are Bible names, but, but listen to these names. Stephen, which is probably Stephanos. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. These are not Jewish names. None of those names are Jewish names. Those are Hellenized names. Those are Greek names. They solved the problem by appointing leadership from the portion of the community that was feeling underserved. Interesting. They didn't say, okay, we're going to put Zacharias in charge of you. No. He was an Orthodox Jew. They appointed from the community that felt oppressed. Interesting. They solved the problem from within the community using representatives of the groups concerned. First implication here, representation in leadership is important to feeling wanted. If you have no representation within the leadership, of whatever community you're a part of, you will automatically take that in your mind to say, I'm not sure they want my kind here. So diversity in leadership matters. Here's another one. Community participation in establishing practical leadership is essential for broad-based buy-in and support. The disciples didn't name seven guys. They said, choose seven. They expected the community to take responsibility 
and to choose leadership. Why? Because that gives a broad-based buy-in to the role that these leaders are playing. And then, after the people had been chosen, they brought them before the twelve, and the twelve acknowledged the practical choice with a spiritual blessing. This is very important. It's very important for us to remember in the church. And, and this is the point where we say, ah, this is when deacons were first established. People appointed for the service of the community. And it's the first office in the church that's actually established. Because a community of believers will have needs and leadership from within the community must arise to meet those needs, and those leaders must be affirmed by the community and blessed by spiritual leadership. This is how it's set up to work. It's interesting. In many ways, we could say the deacons were established to assure the approach of Boaz. You see, you needed people within the community who would notice when there was an injustice taking place. You needed people within the community to communicate with those who were on the outside. You needed people within the community to show kindness on behalf of the community. And you needed people in the community to make provision for those who had needs. It had to happen. But now before we leave this, I want to make two more points. One about spiritual leadership and one about, uh, one about practice uniformity. First, let's go back to these first four verses of Acts 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so the church is doing well, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered together. They said, we, we should probably stick with what we're doing here, but we understand this is a real need. We need to appoint people to do this. The community rose up. It got involved. It appointed people to these roles. So here's the question I want to ask you, and this is a thought question, and it's not a right or wrong, but I want you to think about this in your mind. The apostles said we probably shouldn't stop doing what we're doing to referee the community and to make sure everybody has what they have. Appoint people from the community and take care of this. Now let me ask you, our expectation in this day of pastors, what is our expectation of the role of a pastor? Is a pastor more like an apostle or is a pastor more like a deacon? Now remember I'm telling you, there's not a right or wrong answer here. But I want you to think about the question. Is your expectation of a pastor that they will provide spiritual leadership and teaching primarily? Or is your expectation of a pastor that they will referee and order the community? Now see, it isn't wrong to choose someone and pay them to referee, support, and attend to the needs of the community. But is that really what we want this role to be. It's certainly not a perfect comparison. 
But it's an issue worthy of consideration from both sides. From the side of pastors who get a little over-involved in everything you're doing. Or from the side of members who say, why aren't you taking better care of us? Now it's a continuum. It's not a yes-no. But it's certainly different from the earliest days of the Adventist church. In the earliest days of the Adventist church, pastors tended to have multiple congregations. And, and they still do in this conference in a lot of places. And in those settings, there's a general expectation that the local elders run the church and the pastor comes in and is involved, but not necessarily as hands-on. In the churches like this one that are blessed with multiple staff, those roles kind of shift. But we have to be careful or we will find ourselves in a scenario where we're hiring deacons to oversee us and missing the calling that God places on the community of faith to provide practical leadership and participation. One of the realities of any community is that we cannot make anyone feel wanted here without a highly functional, member-centered diaconate. I think you use that word here, right? I'm still trying to learn that and use that in my vocabulary. Meaning, men and women committed to the practical needs of the community. In many ways, this was working very well before COVID. In many ways, since we've come back, it's been a bit of a stumbling start to try to get all of these roles going again. There have been a lot of changes. Changes in pastoral leadership, changes within the community, changes within our own mentalities because of the experiences we've been through over the last year. But key to us reaching a point where someone who walks through the door who's not been here before feeling welcome is a sense within the community itself, not just the platform, but from the community that it is our job to answer the question in the mind of the person coming in here, do you want me here? Do I play a role in answering that? Yes. Do I play the most important role in answering that? I want to say no. I've been in a lot of different churches in my life. I've been in churches that had very powerful pastoral leadership that, that, that had remarkable outcomes that took place. But I've also seen in most of those cases, after that pastor left, everything went back to the way it used to be. I've also been part of communities where the leadership, the practical leadership that emerged from the congregation was so strong, pastors could come and go all they wanted, and that church just kept on being awesome. Maybe it hurts my feelings a little bit, but I am less responsible for the awesomeness of this community than you are.
A church needs an organized collection of stable believers who labor to meet the needs of the community as they arise. Sabbath morning needs. We have stuff we have to do here. All these windows have to be open. The fans have to be on. All these, all these lights have to be adjusted. Somebody has to run sound. People are up there making sure we're streaming. All of these tasks have to be done. The facilities... Brigida is sort of queen deacon at this point because she takes care of all of this stuff. And that's okay. It's okay for us to pay a deacon, a servant, someone whose primary interest is making sure the practical needs of the community take place. She does that. Member needs, literally waiting on tables, but in a in an engaged way. You see, a community of believers can help those within it who have need so much better than a government that's disconnected. And here's why. They're engaged. They're close. And when we're engaged with each other, we have a much better chance of affecting lasting change in each other's lives. Now, we have a big advantage here. And that big advantage goes by a single letter, J. You all know about Pastor J, right? See, the amazing thing about Pastor J is he actually can do everything until it nearly kills him. All right? So that's awesome. J is an amazing asset. But it doesn't mean we should let him do everything, does it? He's able... He's like nature. He abhors a vacuum. He moves into anything that needs doing and does it. And does it well. Now this is not such a big issue with me. Because I don't have that skill set where I can do everything. If you left it all to me, eventually it would all fall down. I can do some things many of you can't. But I also can't do many, of things, many things most of you can. This is a hardship for Alicia. You can pray for her. I'm not a practical man. She suffers. But this is why it's a priesthood of believers. This is why we all matter. But enough on that. Let's, that's key to, to someone coming in and feeling wanted when we know what we're doing and why we're doing it and we're all engaged in it. But, but let's go on from that. There's a second point. Hellenized Jews and Orthodox Jews in the same community of believers, much less Samaritans and Gentiles. The thought that we can hold that many different pieces together blows the mind. And it is true that at the end of the day, we cannot be all things for all people. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a welcoming spirit. Here's the thing about Hellenized Jews and Orthodox Jews. Let's just look at them. Were the more Orthodox believers engaging in spiritual overkill, or were the Hellenized believers just marginally good enough to be included? You see, we make these distinctions in our mind, whether we mean to or not. Well, he's a good Adventist. Eh, he's, I don't know. We're, it shows our grace that we let him come. 
here's what I want you to wrestle with, because I don't know the answer to it. Could it be that in this early church, the Hellenized Jews, the Orthodox Jews, could it be that, that maybe both of their practices were acceptable to Jesus? That it was okay for this one group to continue to be Orthodox, but it was also okay for this other group not to be? Is that allowed? I want to take you to Romans chapter 14 really quick. Romans chapter 14. Fascinating words. Here's Paul writing, attempting as best he can to keep this church of Jews and Gentiles somehow together. Romans 14 verse 1, it says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling or disputing matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So here's the point. Not everybody in the church has to be like you. And it's even possible God is calling you to things, to ways of living, to ways of being that he really does want you to follow. But that doesn't mean he wants her to follow them. That's a little hard for us, right? Because we want to list the rules. And once we've listed the rules, we know who's good and who's not. But could it be that there is room in a community for Hellenized Jews and Hebraic Jews? Could it be that what God is calling us to is just a little bigger than maybe what we imagined? That maybe we don't necessarily know everything about the kingdom of God and exactly who's in and who isn't in and who's a faithful servant and who is not? That maybe humility is the most important grace we could carry with us. I want to touch on one more story. And it's in Luke chapter 15. We won't read the whole thing because it's a story you know well. I want to just touch on this. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, I want you to note this point. The father divided his property between his sons before he died. So that's kind of a hard thing. The the division of it's not supposed to happen until afterward. But his son made the request. So he divided. He gave a portion to the younger son And you know what that means about all the rest of it? All the rest of it belonged to the other brother. Okay, bear that in mind. It's important to the story. Because the portion that belongs to the younger has been given, meaning all the rest belongs to the older brother. Now that younger brother goes off and he squanders everything he had with wild living. And after he'd spent everything, a famine comes on the land. He finds himself destitute. He's, he's feeding swine 
and wishing he could eat their food. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Is there anything untrue in his statement? No. He really does no longer deserve any of it. He no longer owns any of it. He doesn't deserve to be a son anymore. But he's asking for the mercy of being a hired servant. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Here's an interesting thing. We talked about four principles for how to make someone feel wanted. You notice You communicate, you show kindness, you make provision. Did you notice what the father did? While he was still a long way off, he noticed. First step in making him feel welcome home. The second, he communicated, and he communicated with his run. I want you here. Third, he showed kindness. The son goes into his speech, and he's like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Here, put this robe on him. He didn't deserve it, but he gave it to him anyway. He showed kindness. Verse 22, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. He made provision. He did all four things, didn't he? Notice, communicated, showed kindness, made provision. He did them all. But as you recall, not everybody was thrilled. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Why? Well, he came and he heard all the fun and he said, what's going on? They said, hey, your brother's back. And your father has thrown a party. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Now, now remember what we said at the beginning? Who owned everything? The only stuff left was the older brother's. And he's complaining that his dad never gave him a goat. It's yours. Take a goat. You don't have to ask permission. But he doesn't get it. And he didn't consider life with the family a blessing. He considered it slaving. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property, well, technically he gave it to him, so it was his, with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf. Verse 31 My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. All right, here's the point. In every way, everyone who is regular about coming into this place each Sabbath is 
the older brother. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. I'm just saying this place belongs to you. It doesn't belong to me. I mean, I have, I have my little piece of it. But it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. It belongs to the community. And guess what? We didn't build it. We inherited it. Right? Anybody here when they built this? Didn't think so. We inherited this from our fathers. And we're the older brothers. And everyone who comes in these doors that is new or that has been gone for a long time is a younger brother because they haven't been here giving and maintaining this place. They haven't been a part of what it takes to make this place happen. Now here's the deal with this story. Sticking strictly to the facts, the older brother is right. But sometimes being right makes you so wrong. More on this another time, but strictly speaking, all of this is yours. But here's the question. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? This is yours. This church belongs to you. What do you want to do with it? Want to keep it for yourself? Or just keep it for people like you? Well, we can do that. It's ours. You could do that, I guess. But if you did, you'd run afoul of this passage that we're going to close with. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It's an interesting connection here back to John 14, right? I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is saying, the kingdom that is prepared for you will come. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take the inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. So when's the bike thing, Brigida? Is that a couple weeks? It's going to be thirsty people, right? That's kind of in the text, isn't it? The fact that she's going to be here that morning with the table set up with things for people to drink 
is scriptural. That's Bible stuff we're doing. And what an interesting thing that the Lord uh, orchestrated for us today. Rebecca got in touch a couple weeks ago, said, hey, I'm wondering how we can engage with the community better. I know of uh, someone involved with Afghan refugees that's uh, in the Denver area, and then locally people associated with veterans. Could, Could we invite them to maybe come and say a few words? Well, I don't know. It's strangers. That's outsiders. Are we going to let them in? And they come in on this day when we're talking about the question that anyone who might come in here might ask, do you want me here? And what message are we giving them? Do we want them here? Do we want people to come in and tell us about, or do we want the world to stay out there? Do we want to engage Engagement with veterans is messy, isn't it? It's hard sometimes. A lot of them have been through really hard stuff. And and Diana, I mean, refugees. Come on, get your own country right, right? Is that the spirit? Is that what we have? Or are we going for something more? Older brothers, what are we going for? Who's welcome in the the house of God? Who's welcome in the kingdom? Who deserves help? Who deserves suffering? Are you able to judge another man's servant? Are you all knowing? So I want to invite the band back. They're going to come and they're going to lead us in some songs and we're going to reflect. But the first song is going to be about coming to the altar. And we probably need to do that, don't we? With a certain repentance in our hearts, accepting the provision that the Father has made for us through Jesus, to come to the altar to the one whose arms are open wide, who doesn't recoil from us when he sees us like he probably should, but instead says, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in me. I've prepared a place for you. And if I've prepared a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am there, you may be also. Do you want to bring other people with you? Do you want to be there that day when the sheep and the goats are being separated and and end up on that side of the ones that gave their lives for good? It's yours. Older brothers, this is yours. What do you want to do with it?